Hey, it's Zoe Routh, and welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. And this is our series on points of view. And today we have a very interesting and special gentleman by the name of Dan Collins, who is a four times Olympian in kayaking. Let me just run through this list of accolades because it's quite remarkable. He was in Barcelona for the 1992 Olympics, Atlanta in 1996, won the bronze medal there, Sydney 2000, the silver, and then in Athens for 2004, four-time Olympian. And he's since moved on to be an Olympian of sorts in the business world as a great and wonderful consultant, helping teams be winning teams. So welcome, Dan. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you. Wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like a, I sound like a superstar. <laughs> ah, you are a superstar, mate. <laughs> yeah. And you're probably one of the most humble people I've ever met, for sure. So um, I've met Dan maybe about a year and a half ago. And Dan, if you like, you don't have visual of him at the moment because he's on the podcast, but he's a very tall bloke with enormous shoulders and this beautiful, humble face. And he was just so genuine and earnest in everything that he does. And so I'm talking about you in third person, even though you're on the call. This is for the benefit of the listeners. Um, I guess you've maintained your rigorous performance, athletic career or athletic mentality since you finished up in the Olympics. Is that so? Yeah, I think. Um if we're going to be at our at our best in the workplace, I think fitness and health and vitality is an important part of our day. So um, from a, an activity perspective, I've certainly kept up, um, you know, rigorous exercise since finishing my training days. I don't train per se anymore, but I certainly keep myself um, very active. So... Uh, and I think it's important because you, you think of how busy we are in today's society and our ability to cope with stress. I think if you exercise more, it's bloody important, I reckon, to cope with some of the mental stresses that we have in a more modern society. Oh, I totally agree with you. So I'm I'm a runner. I'm an exerciser as well. I just finished my gym workout this morning before hopping on the podcast interview. Um, I can imagine that the requirements for being an Olympian in terms of the training load is considerably different for being than being like a corporate athlete. So, and I know that self mastery and leading yourself is one of the core components that you have in terms of your thought leadership and how you work with people. When you talk about leading yourself and managing yourself, do you talk about mindset as well as physicality? Tell me a little bit about your advice to leaders when it comes to that sort of leading self piece. Yeah, I figure we've got the biggest journey I think we're all on is to continue to reach increasing levels of consciousness, Zoe. Like I think, I reckon that's our greatest journey and, our, and it's, it's our biggest challenge and it's our most rewarding focus if we look at self. So what I mean by that is the ability to control your thoughts, control your emotions, regardless of the situation. So different situations require different levels of thought and to be fully aware of um, the moment to be, to be fully present in it and then to control your thoughts and then be able to control your emotions in those moments. That's for me, I think, our greatest life journey um, because there's so many different stimuluses that come our way. So I, I would suggest probably our first one, the most important one for all of us is to get our mindset right. You know, that, that level of consciousness that allows us to operate at optimum in any given moment, that's the first one. I reckon then secondly, 
there's the emotional mastery that comes along with those thoughts. And then thirdly, I think there's the, the physicalness, you know, looking after yourself, good food, good sleep, good hydration, good activity. So, um, but certainly I think the, the number one, and then the, they actually cascade down is that levels of consciousness, you know, um, and being fully aware of the conversation that's going on inside your head and being able to pick the right thoughts for the right moment. And I can see that as never ending. So it's kind of a process for me that I look at and have really begun maybe 10 years ago to be really, really aware as much as I can of that conversation. And I can't imagine that it'll ever finish at any point in life. And that's the journey. And then along the way, you get these really nice moments of perfection when you when you achieve certain things. But I think the journey is that that levels of consciousness. Oh, that's a beautiful, um, I was not expecting that answer. And it's beautiful because I aligned with it completely in terms of uh, developing levels of consciousness and awareness. And one of the most significant components to emotional intelligence is that ability to look at your inner dialogue and to then direct traffic with it, I guess, if you like. So the first step is being coming aware of the fact that you have thoughts and it's creating emotions. And the second part is being able to deal with it in some way. So like you said, you, you began this journey about 10 years ago. Mm. What kinds of things do you do in order to master that inner dialogue? Like, do you have a deliberate practice around that? Do you have a journaling habit that you have? Tell me about it. Yeah. So I figure I probably began this journey at a subconscious level as far back as 1992, um, but really consciously in the last 10 years. So absolutely in the last 10 years, aware of what's going on inside my head and, and then being able to redirect. So, and, the, and the habits that I've formed around this are for me, and I think everyone has to have their own, but I do journal every night. Really? So, yeah, every night. And if I don't, then I keep a score of uh, some key thoughts through the day uh, and, I, and I play catch up uh, at the back end of the week. Uh, but I have a page per night uh, journal entry just to download thoughts. Um, the second thing I, th I use is mindless exercise. So what I mean by this, it has to be out of a gym. So it can't be inside an environment where you've got distractions of TV, music, earphones, iPhone and it has to be mindless. So it has to be an activity that I don't have to think about. So running, walking, cycling, paddling a kayak, rowing on a rowing machine, swimming in a pool. So swimming in a pool is wonderful because you've got, you've, there's silence when you're in the water, right? Mm. So, and I think this allows you to connect body and brain. And it also allows if you, once you get into rhythm of your breathing, it allows the brain to do have a nothingness. It's essential to allow the subconscious brain to create a level of awareness for itself because you start your activity with a whole bunch of thoughts and bloody problems and, and then when you're finished, you're clear, you know. So, And the other one, I suppose, I'd three times a week, I'd spend time just trying to do some form of meditation. And it's certainly something that I want to get better at is being in a state where I can do mindless, but I, I find physical activity is the best way to do that or some sort of mindless exercise. So 
uh, I get allows the body, and maybe because it's my back, because of my background, but allows the body to get into a rhythm and breathing rhythm. And then because it's in a rhythm, my logical brain goes to sleep and I have no thoughts. And then all of a sudden, it's just a nice state to be in. I think it's it's got to be exercise that's firm but doesn't hurt. Because if it starts to hurt, you start to have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know yeah I mean? that's right. You start to have thoughts where, hey, I've got to push harder or push through this or you have to start to have concentration thoughts. It can't be that. So journaling, you know, occasionally some conscious meditation and I, I use the, the app um, Headspace for that. And um, the attraction for me of getting better at that is that I can do it without the exercise. So <laughs> so you don't have to <laughs> always pump out some movement to, to drop into that that um, space. It's interesting though, because um, like I'm a meditator, I meditate every pretty much every morning and the brain is still busy. Like it, for me, it, it depends on some days it's less busy, but there's always thoughts that pop in there. I'm, I'm curious about the mindlessness as opposed to the mindfulness of exercising in a rhythm. So do you actually find that as you're moving and breathing, that's all there is, is this movement and breathing that there is, there's no bubbling of thoughts. No. So you get, I suppose if I was to jog at a a very steady state for maybe 40, 40, 45 minutes, and which, which is what I recommend, then the first 15 to 20 minutes you'd begin and you're very aware that your thoughts are there, right? But after a period of time, Zoe, what I find is that you start to focus on your breathing because the breathing is the thing that helps you continue to run nicely or to paddle nicely or row nicely or swim nicely. And then when you're focusing on the breathing, you're almost in a meditative state, but you're moving. Mm. And then the brain goes mindless. It just empties. Uh, And that to me is a really beautiful state because you're just total attached mind and body totally attached and you're very aware of what your body's doing in a mindless state if that makes sense yeah it's it's mindless and mindful at the same time so you're completely absorbed in the physicality of the movement yes without the narrative of inner dialogue so i'm a runner too so and i think i just spend too much time in my thoughts as opposed to focusing on my breathing i'm curious about the breathing stuff do you do breathing exercises? Like I know I've, I've learned about box breathing from the Navy SEALs mm. where, you know, breathe in four count, hold four count, breathe out four count and breathe in four count. Do you do anything like that during your exercise or is just simply paying attention to the breath? No, I don't. And the only time I used uh, breathing exercises and I've, I've begun to use it a little bit with my speaking is when you have big moments where you need to perform. So I used to breathe, have a breathing routine that kept me calm in really pressure moments, like, you know, prior to world championship or Olympic finals. Mm. Um, There's, I think, a breathing routine helps you be pretty centred on and focused and absolutely determined on on what you need to do. Uh, And I think... For those of us who are in the corporate sector or, or in jobs that require absolute focus, I think a breathing routine just to focus you and keep you calm so that your, your lizard brain doesn't take over, I think is, you know, it's an important thing, but also to be able to recognize when you need it. So I don't need it all the time. 
but there was a time when I'd always needed it because pressure when I was a younger man would get the better of me. So I needed to expand my bandwidth to handle the moment mm. and breathing was one of the activities that I used. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, being a four-time Olympian, that's a lot of pressure. Like those are, that's at the ultimate of high performance and there's, it's a world stage. Do you experience that kind of pressure nowadays or was that really the peak of pressure from your point of view or have you changed and it doesn't matter what happens and you're just simply more calm? Yeah, I, I, I would suggest a little bit of both. I think they're pretty big moments, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you put, uh, you know, like an Olympic final or Olympic semi-final, that, that's a big moment, right? But, I, you know, I can remember my first, you know, changing careers. You know, when we, if we were to change careers, so I went from elite sports administration and, and that changing career, like my first couple of job interviews, oh, my God, I was beside myself, you know. So, and just to be able to go back and go, hey, I've felt this feeling before, these nerves, that's normal because this is a big moment. This is really important to you. So your body's trying to prepare yourself for it. Um, so you just click back into, okay, I can handle this. And you go back to your breathing routine. What do I need to focus on? Um, externalize my thoughts. So I'm no longer sort of, you know, so focused on me that I can, I can think external as to who I'm trying to serve or who I'm trying to be uh, useful for. And that takes off a bit of the pressure as well. So, and then, you know, look, I look at um, my last couple of years when I've entered the speaking domain and my first couple of speeches, oh, geez, bloody hell, Zoe. I was, <laughs> I was, I was really like, you know, when people say, um, you know, speaking is one of everyone's greatest fears, I can, well, I can align with that. It's, uh, it's, you know, when you stand up in front of 600 people and it's at a dinner or something like that and your first couple of speeches, bloody hell, it's a big moment for you. So, Again, I come back to a routine of, um, of breathing and then focusing on what others might want from me. So it enables me to just perform. And because I've done it over and over again, I think that I'm able to maintain a level of calmness and centeredness because I've had those big moments, lots of them yeah. in my life. So, yeah. And it's just practice. It is just genuinely practice. And people say, oh, you're really good at it. Yeah, but I've done it lots. You know, yeah. so there was a there was a moment, there was a time when I was not. There was time when I was rubbish at it. You know, mm. uh, and it got the better of me, and I didn't perform as well as what I should have because of pressure. So, none of us are born with a mechanism to deal with the fight flight. You know, none of us are. So, we need to establish that, and you need to be brave enough to take yourself into environments where you're going to experience that fight flight mechanism. And moments that are really big in your life and be okay with stuffing it up because we weren't born being able to control that but as we get older and more mature the approach has got to be well that's where life gets really interesting and and opens up for us if we're brave enough to take those moments on and when you do that and realize that it's just a moment you'll get another one and each one you get better the next time round. I think it's, you know, and you, then your bandwidth for that moment gets bigger. And that's the approach I took. Just uh, put yourself in lot in front of lots of them yeah. and you'll get better at it. 
So, so I just want to unpick one component of what you've just described. So the big moments and the, which turns into a fight and flight thing. So it's a big moment in quotation marks because of the story we tell around what that moment means. And then the hack always is the same thing. You know, it's breathing and being centered and focusing outwards on who you're in service to. So the yeah. hack is always the same, but the narrative is is something that is different. So I'm curious about that. So as a journaler, what did you notice thinking about those big moments? Yeah. What was the story that created the pressure? And was it the same story? I mean, those are all different circumstances from speaking to job interviews to Olympics that all mm. the, the common story is that it's a big moment. But what were you telling yourself that was adding the pressure or creating anxiety on top of that? Yeah, brilliant question. So for me, it's goal driven. So it's what I wanted to create for myself and my family in life. So it was purely focused on the mountain I was climbing. So the moment is created because you get to that, you get to that ridge where you say, this is, I've got to perform here. You know, this is the moment you were waiting for. Well, this is the moment you've been working toward. I don't think you get nervous if you don't work towards anything or don't want anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So if you don't want to create anything for yourself in life, you won't get nervous. It'd be bloody boring. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you won't you won't you won't create anything. You know, when when you've decided that you want something special for you and your family or a new result or, or a next level up, you you'll set goals and that those goals will be out of reach for you now because you're not good enough to achieve them now. If you were, you'd already have them, right? So that means you're going to be stretched and tested. And because of that, you're, you're kind of in a no man's land, if that makes sense. You're in an environment where you don't know. So that not knowing and maybe you're not good enough right now, that creates pressure. That's the test. And, mm. and when we get tested, we get found out and we're either up for it in that moment or not. And, but that's where, we, that's where it all happens, right? At the edge of your limits, at the edge of your limits is where life happens, I reckon. It just does. It just it doesn't happen inside them. You might get nice habits and routines and all that sort of stuff inside your limits, which is important. But growth happens at those limits where we don't know what's next. So, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about some of your core beliefs, which is having, you know, living life on the edge. The edge of limits is where life happens. I've written that down because it's such a beautiful quote. Um, and that in that no man's land where you don't know what's next and if you're up for it is, is the tension that creates pressure. What are some, I mean, you keep putting yourself on the line all the time. What are some of your most important beliefs? Oh, um, maybe instead of beliefs, uh, it might be better for me to explain what I look at as three core, um, I don't know if they're principles, Zoe, but I just, they're things that I, everything revolves around three things for me. So the first one is that um, consciousness and personal responsibility. So if I look at that and go, if I'm going to be a really useful man in my community and strong for my partner, and strong for my children and really great for my for everyone that comes in contact i've got to be very conscious i've got to have high levels of responsibility be accountable to most things um 
so for me, that's, you know, that's vital. Um, the second thing is excellence. So an excellence for me means a never ending journey to get better at what you're doing in all areas. For me, that's a, that's a vital thing. We can't not have that because that's where your fulfillment comes from. So your personal fulfillment, if that makes sense. So I know that areas of my life, whether that be finances and health or, you know, friends and family or could be some goals to connect greater to community, whatever that might be, I think excellence and that not never-ending improvement and wanting to be better than yesterday. And I think that drives me. And I was very, I was very aware of that from a young age. And I think that striving, we get scared of that for some reason, humans. Mm. That, that, I, I don't know why we, we get scared of that, but we do. For me, it's that striving is um, we should all be really aware of that. We've all got an inbuilt striving, but we put it to bed for some reason. So we, we, we kind of, we get comfortable with just being normal. Whereas I, I don't think that's, or average, I don't mm. think that's, I don't think that's. So the last one is love. So, really? Yeah, absolutely. You know, love, love of me, love of my, my wife, love of children, um, love of life, the larger love of life. I think love to have love and, and be vulnerable enough to be loved and to give love. You know, I think it's those three key things for me. Most of my life revolves around those three things. That's, that's beautiful. So um, I guess the next question I have is around success. And uh, maybe you've answered already because if these are your three principles slash beliefs, how do you then define success? Yeah. So, so I have this in my mind, this tension between what I call the fixed and growth mindset. So I actually think you need both. So when we hear experts talk about, you know, a growth mindset, which is, I believe that's my approach to excellence. So never ending improvement. But I also think we need a fixed mindset. So we need things to say, actually, I want to finish here, whatever that is. So I want to save $100 a week, or I want to put something. So there's that, there's the, that's absolute fixed. There's no budging that. And I have this tension between the two because you need that. You need the sort of the tension that's created between nailing an outcome, which I see as success, right? Whereas whereas excellence for me is just this, well, that's great along the way. That creates a really nice moment of perfection for you, but perfection doesn't last. It moves. So it's, it, 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 it's, 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 a, it's not an end game thing. It sort of moves past you or you leave it behind and then you create a, a new thing. Now something else comes along. That's probably like the, the best definition I've ever heard about that tension between goals and development. Um, and I, I love it. I think that's great. So, you know, success, nailing an outcome. Yeah. But it's not just that. And I think that's one of the things a lot of my clients struggle with is I always ask them that question. Well, how do you define success? And for many of them, it's, it's simply the external markers. And it's not necessarily the aspect of excellence, which is striving for a never-ending improvement and commitment to the, to the growth piece. So I think the two of them, they work in tandem, don't they? So you need yeah, to always... Yeah, you, you do. You need, you need both because 
the the tangible finish line to something creates some a hoop for us to jump through. You got to sort of the excellence is the climbing and the striving, mm-hmm. right? And the success is the mountain. Which one do I climb? But once you're at the top, there's another one to go, and that's that excellence mindset. It's, it's never it's it's never done. <laughs> You know, because we can get so comfortable in past success, can't we, Zoe? Like we just, you know, we get so bloody happy with ourselves and our peacock feathers come out and we're full of ego and and that's a real internal look. Um, whereas if we externalise and say, actually, to serve to another level, I need to be better again. Mm. So if I'm useful even f- higher up for more people, what have I got to become? And that's to me... And then... To help you get a guide of that success, you've got to put a marker down. Hmm. And that to me, that the marker down is the success bit. But it, that's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's, it's kind of you, you got there or you didn't. Either way, it doesn't matter because you're going to go again anyway. So It's really destination and journey. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people don't manage the journey part well. And I think if you, if you revel in the journey part, what you call excellence and striving, the destinations are sweet as, or as sweet as the striving piece. And I think that's a, that's a really powerful way to, to live your life because you, you get to savor the milestones as well as the progress. Yeah, look, and, and I didn't always think this way, Zoe, because in 1996 at my second Olympics, whilst we were really successful, we had a fixed mindset only. You needed um, to get the gold was the, we what needed, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we need, yeah, we only had a, and, and when we look behind us, geez, we torn some arms and legs off each other and people and we just burnt people. It was so hard to live with, right? Yeah. Because we were, we were beasts. Um, and whilst we were successful, we burnt each other out and we burnt those around us out and we were bloody hard to live with. Whereas, and then we said, well, you know, it was ridiculous to think in our prime when we looked at Sydney and said, shit, I don't know if I can make Sydney, you know, like it's four years away, you know, for a night for a 90 second race that we might improve half a second over in the next four years. Oh my God. We both looked at each other and went, "Uh, yeah, maybe not. Maybe we can't do it. But we arrived at this, this thinking that what if it was what if it was bigger than the race what if what if it wasn't about the medal what if it was about being this is a was a was a vehicle to be bloody good humans do you know uh, and and when we arrived at that then excellence entered our world and then you have along the way these wonderful moments of perfection you know we won a world championship we you know we children enter their lives sort of you have these moments of perfection along the way but that they're they're fleeting right so then when you've got both excellence and a fixed mindset you enjoy them both but you're much easier to live with and you're not as hard on people and yourself around the success piece around those destination pieces yeah when you've got an undercurrent of, well, it's just part of, it's that's just a test. It's a test. There'll be another one and another one and another one. And then I've just got to keep rising to that. That's amazing. So I love this because this is a radical shift in perspective. So you spent two Olympic games just being all about the destination, the gold medal, 
And then you had this pivot point. So what was it? Was there a particular incident or was just this growing awareness of getting worn down and growing awareness that you're a bit of a jerk in terms of who you're living with? What was it? Was it a a specific moment? Yeah, it was. It was a specific moment. So we would have been about three and a half hours after medal ceremony in 1996. And you've got to remember, Sydney was a huge thing. You know, the, the funding for athletes was now... You know, we, we were actually going to receive some money to be to be athletes. We, we were entering a market where some corporate opportunities might have been opening up, um, and we're lying in our beds, right? Just lying, reflecting. It's about three and a half hours in a place called Deloniga, and I remember it. I was exhausted, Zoe, absolutely exhausted. Um, and neither of us spoke for about 15 minutes just lying on our different beds in our in our room and I sat up and said right we best go have a beer and um and Trimmy said the same and I and I just said mate how do you feel and he said I oh, just it's I'm a total relief and I'm glad it's over and I thought and we both thought this is bullshit this you know like this is not how it was supposed to be mm. um and then we started talking about it over a few beers, as you do, <laughs> um, and and what what we arrived at was that because we failed at our first Olympics, we were so scared of failing again that we had four years of fixed mindset. Mm. And I think you can be excellent, but not have excellence in your life. So on that day in Atlanta in 1996, we were brilliant. We were so good. Uh, we raced beautifully. We, we executed our plan. We did, we did everything well. But the four years leading to that moment was hell. And we made it hell for those around us because we were so driven and brutal that we were, we were selfish and really hard to live with. And then I look at the journey from 96 to 2000 where we just said, hey, that's not going to last. We, we won't last. We'll kill each other for a start and we won't have anyone left around us because we're such assholes. So we sort of, <laughs> we said, right, so by the time we got back to Australia, we thought let's just focus on different stuff. Same stuff but different mindset and whilst the fixed mindset was required and the measurement of everything didn't change, we just looked at it differently. So we just thought, okay, well, this needs a different look at it. We were still hard on each other. We still had fierce conversations. We were still, there was absolute candor in everything we did and we didn't let each other off the hook around standards and performance, but it was, through a different lens it had a different context which is this never-ending improvement as opposed to blame or letting someone down you know and that has a different energy to it out of all the four olympics do you have one that stands out as your favorite it's going to be weird to you but yes (laughs) my first one where we failed dismally because i learned the lesson at that point around personal responsibility. And so at 21 uh, on a world stage, we were exposed to, you know, I just was exposed. I was exposed as a young man. I couldn't handle the pressure. Um, I couldn't handle 
um, you know, the, the, the Olympic Village and all the distractions that it is, I couldn't handle. There's, oh, look, it was, it was huge. So when I got, when I got back and realised all the mistakes I made, I look back now, many years on, and say, "Well, that was actually, that was actually the best for me." And whilst it was, at the time, horrific, um, I now look at it and go, "That was the Olympics that made me." That was, and wow. and and the rest of them, I, I think, for enjoyment, Sydney and Athens, like just, I just loved the racing. I just loved it. Just mm. it was so good. Like just the big moment and um, lining up, knowing that this is the very best the world's got right now and let's see how we go. Let's give it our best and see if we're good enough. And And to be able to be in that environment is a privilege because we've got bodies that allow us to do it. Not everyone's got a body that can compete at that level. Yeah. Uh, so it's a real, it's a, it's a privilege. Um. Uh, but but it's also I took that privilege that nature gave me and worked my ass off as well. So um, it allowed me to experience something very very special. So those two Olympics just for the just for the racing was unreal. It was so good. It's great great racing. Awesome. So I have one last question. Out of your beautiful grand ginormous life, what are you most proud of? Um. I think longevity. So, I, you know, I think you can have a successful year. You may even have a successful couple. But if you continually grow and create great results for yourself and that never-ending growth, I think that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. And the attitude and the man you have to become to be able to do that because, you know, that's it's a never-ending challenge and test. And the tests get bigger as you get bigger. As you get mm-hmm. bigger as a human, the tests get more, more complex and um, more integrated. And um, so for me to be able to grow into handling more and more that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's a, I'm really proud of that, you know, that, that approach to just go, okay, what's, what's my next biggest burden? What's the biggest rock I can pick up? Okay, let's have, let's grab that one. And that, that to me has been, I've been really proud that I've been able to continually do that in life. That's beautiful. Um, Dan, thank you so much. I've learned heaps from this interview and I've taken a ton of notes and uh, I feel really moved by our conversation. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. Wonderful. I've, I've appreciated the opportunity to chat with you, Zoe. So it's been great.